Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim, Will Foxley, and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Teku at Consensus. And I'm Christine, a research associate at Coindesk. This week, we've got Will Foxley back to talk about all things ETH 2.0. Will, how was your week off? It was pretty awesome. Uh, my is Blizzard that did come in and wrecked everyone's weekend. I was going to go skiing and then I got trapped in my house because of the snow. So that wasn't great. I mean, I was looking forward to actually skiing, but there's like three feet outside my house right now. So that's not great, but it's really pretty. I will give it that. But that was my that's week. So crazy. <laughs> it's, it's still snowing like crazy over there where you are in Colorado um, in March and here in Vancouver, Canada, where I'm at, it's basically almost, it's like midway through spring. Very different. Fall is like two weeks long and spring is like in May, basically. Yeah, it's two seasons. That's actually kind yeah. of perfect for people who have allergies. I know like a really long extended spring season, mm. people just kind of go crazy with the allergies. No, I second you there. It's true. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you had a good week. Oh, okay. Not a great week off, but you know, got to stay indoors, maybe take a break from like Ethereum stuff. So last week while you're away, Will, we had Super Fizz on from the ETH staker community to talk about ETH 2.0 technical developments, community developments. Um, but while we were kind of talking about all those things, we didn't get a chance, we didn't get time to talk about my favorite topic, which is the crypto market. So I thought since we're all back, all three of us, um, why not kind of switch up the order of what, what we do on our show and start with our markets discussion first. Ben? I know that that makes you very happy, right? <laughs> I like nothing more than talking markets. Well, this particular topic, which is about the $69 million people NFT sale that happened last week, it's related to the crypto markets because it's basically about how the crypto markets are pricing a new kind of crypto asset. NFTs have been around for several years now, but it's kind of recently that they've drawn a lot of mainstream interest and hype. And I want to talk a little bit with you, Will and Ben, about how we price NFTs. Like where do they get their value and their, and their intrinsic worth from? How much of the pricing of, say, the Beeple NFT sale last week, which was sold on, on the British Royal Auction House Christie's for $69 million, how much of that is just a bubble, something that people care about now, but in a couple of years is going to be yesterday's news or, or last week's news and won't actually retain all its value. And so recently when I was, when I was talking to a bunch of different people who are in the NFT space, et cetera, I mean, it's a really huge step forward for the industry talking about how much, you know, NFTs are selling for, who's getting into NFTs, but also at the same time, there's just so much infrastructure that hasn't been set up for NFT marketplaces. I don't think a lot of users know where their NFT data lives. I don't know if people actually understand how they can verify the authenticity of an NFT. 
for artists creating NFTs, I mean, do we understand how copyright laws would work for NFTs, for NFT creations, all of these kind of standard practices for purchasing, selling NFTs, education around them, I think is really critical for, the, for NFTs to maintain its value over time and increase in value over time. But because all of that kind of isn't there, it makes me think, you know, a lot of it is more hype than it is true value being generated in a way. Would you guys agree with that? Had you also thought and also shared kind of my concerns around the bubble that's being created around this this market? There's definitely a paradigm shift going on here, right? The ability to assert ownership over a digital asset is a new thing. And we haven't been able to do that until the recent years. And it's uh, amazing to see it catch on in a much wider community than, say, the CryptoKitties community. I mean, for this to be breaking out of the crypto bubble is uh, extraordinary. So in that sense, I think there is a a paradigm shift. It it will change the future, does open up a whole new way of, of doing things. As for what they're worth, I mean, I'm confused about how people value paintings in the real world. You know, what is this Picasso worth? Why is it worth $100 million? I don't know. So it's hard to judge whether an NFT, which is asserting ownership over a piece of art, is you know has a similar value or not. So I'm going to leave it there. As an NFT whale, I should probably recuse myself from this part of the conversation. No, just kidding. Uh, I think in general, it's kind of interesting to think of it in the way that we think of Bitcoin as money. And the only reason we think of Bitcoin as money is not because of the tech, but because everyone has slowly come around to the idea of using Bitcoin as money. And kind of the same evolution we're seeing with Ethereum and Ether. Uh, people value NFTs because people are starting to recognize Ethereum as an immutable layer for storing any kind of data. Uh, so I think we'll only see like more of this happen as Ethereum is more generally recognized as a place where you can save data and that data is not going away. Once everyone in like the global community or at least uh, online community starts recognizing Ethereum is like the common watering hole for value. In the same way, we're starting to see Bitcoin as a common standard for digital currency. Uh, I think we're just going to see like that continue. But it's really weird. I will say that. I don't know if that was worth $70 million. Like I wouldn't pay that much for that. I'd buy a yacht or something. But that's my take on it. And very recently too, I mean, it wasn't just that one Beeple NFT art that sold on Christie's for millions. There was another one uh, that came out today, I think, that um, also earned just appreciated in value like crazy, like 500x. So the hype continues. And I think it's a really good point that honestly, I myself don't actually know how traditional pieces of art also get valued. And and some of the art pieces that aren't NFTs, but are just physical paintings, like modern art in galleries, those also go for millions, which I'm not quite sure how the pricing works for that either. So it's a good point that NFTs in a similar way when it comes to art, they're all kind of risky and we all don't know exactly what that value is until it's something that everybody recognizes together as like, this is valuable. So like with Picasso, for example, or, or these kinds of things, it's almost like uh, what Will was saying that people come around to it together. It's like a collective mm. understanding of value that attributes a value. Maybe not something that comes from intrinsically, but that people around it, like the community around it form. And I can definitely see a strong community around NFTs already forming. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that in and of itself is is quite noteworthy and something that as we've seen with the the community that, that both Ethereum and, and Bitcoin have developed as well as with DeFi, et cetera, this will likely be something to keep talking about in the months and the years to come. This is a cynic in me. I think there's quite a lot of this, both in, in the crypto world and, and the real world, is, is just about bragging rights, isn't it? And it's not about what the asset is. It's about the fact that you won the auction. And we kind of saw that, didn't we, with this? I, I understand that Justin Sun was fractionally outbid at the last minute um, for, for this, uh, you know, of Justin Sun of the Tron. Uh, Jane, who for him, it, it's just marketing budget, right? It's a way to get one over on, on Ethereum, you know, founder of Tron gets one over on OG network. I think there is definitely something about just being able to say, I won that auction and the the marketing value and the publicity value and the, the street cred of having that definitely plays into these numbers. Yeah. I mean, especially with the street cred, those kind of things won't last for long as soon as people move on to the next big thing, the next big innovation that's happening on Ethereum. It does really come down to what people are excited about now and people being the first to get something here. It's a little bit more difficult to say. I feel like that leans more towards hype than lasting impact or lasting value. Uh, Just to jump off Ben's point there, one way I was thinking about this is so, you know, like back in the day, BitMEX was just like huge and everyone hated um, Arthur Hayes for liquidating them. And that was always the joke. Like that's always been a meme. It's like Arthur Hayes liquidated me again. And if you look at like those early systems, that was a big way how Bitcoin was distributed across the market. You, you'd have huge sums of money and just get liquidated and then go to BitMEX and then, you know, kind of spread out from there. I think we're kind of seeing a similar thing with Ethereum, but it has like a lot more avenues for spreading out Ether. Uh, because there still is like a huge amount of ether that's from the pre-mine early in the days. Uh, and there's still a ton of Ethereum whales, but there's so many ways for that ether to get into the nominal person's pocket. And I think NFTs are one way that we're kind of seeing that because uh, if an Ethereum whale sees an NFT they really like, they're probably going to buy it because they have so much ether, they don't care. You know, it's all about having the NFT. It's all about being part of this. And so they'll get rid of it. And that ether ostensibly goes to like, an artist or someone else who doesn't have that amount of ether. And that kind of raises the general equity uh, or equality within the Ethereum ecosystem. So I think that's like kind of an interesting point uh, underlying all this NFT hype. And the same thing that happened with ICOs, same thing that happened with DeFi is like, we're seeing ether, the currency being spread out across market participants through these really wacky ideas like NFTs. And speaking of which, I mean, data does show that the number of whales holding 1000 ether more is going down. And it's been going down for the last couple months. So there has been, as we know, like around the same time, uh, the increasing interest in DeFi applications as well as NFTs. And so it does seem like the data does suggest that uh, the number of whales on Ethereum is decreasing. I'm on to something. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, guys. I think that was good markets talk. I want to hand it off next to Ben for our technical discussion portion of our show today. Yeah, there's uh, only just one big topic to uh, talk about, I think, at the moment, which is the move to proof of stake. Now, it might seem like we've been talking about this for years, but and we have, but this is really gathering momentum now. And there are a few things are factoring into this. So we've had all the recent hoo-ha about EIP-1559, which is Ethereum's plan to burn some portion of the 
rewards paid to miners for executing transactions. And that's part of a, a bigger plan to improve usability of Ethereum. So the miners have revolted to an extent about that and have threatened to attack the chain and all sorts of bad behavior. And in response, a lot of people are getting more serious about moving to proof of stake and, and solving that issue once and for all. Uh, and then we've had the NFT thing we've just been talking about. So there's been a big backlash in parts of the arts and crypto arts uh, community about the use of proof of work to secure NFTs. And so there's a lot of anger, I think is not too strong a word, about the energy consumption used by these blockchains. And of course, you know, Ethereum has a solution. I mean, the proof of stake has been on the cards for a long time now, but always somewhat distant. So we took a concrete step towards that last week. The executable beacon chain spec draft is up for comments now. So what's up to now been in design, in development, there's a draft of it. And uh, on the ETH2 specs repo, it's uh, there for everyone to read and to comment and, and feedback on. And pretty quickly, just a few hours after that went up, Vitalik himself uh, wrote an article that outlined a, a sort of quick merge procedure where we could do a very quick and dirty transition of the ETH1 chain onto uh, ETH2, which is relatively straightforward, almost an emergency transition uh, over to proof of stake if we needed to do so. Um, it would leave a lot of loose ends that we'd have to work on and tidy up later. But it's looking like, you know, this could be months rather than years. So uh, it's getting quite interesting. What exactly is the executable beacon chain spec versus like the quick proposal? Yeah, so putting ETH1 onto ETH2, so getting ETH1 onto proof of stakes looked like different things over time. So in the initial plans, we had this sort of phase zero, phase one, phase two development where we rolled out the ETH2 ecosystem. And then after phase two, we could then import the current ETH1 chain into this nice uh, ecosystem. But, you know, that puts the merge years away, honestly speaking. Over time, the mergers sort of move forward in the timetable. And we were looking at putting in ETH1 as a shard on ETH2, phase 1.5, we called it. The latest proposal, which came out around last November, is to actually put Ethereum 1 state on the beacon chain that we already have running. So we've already got the infrastructure in place and you can very simply link up existing ETH1 clients and existing ETH2 clients, couple them together and run ETH1 as part of this beacon chain, even before we do any sharding is pretty much ready to go. So there's a nice clean spec for that up in the specs repo. Uh, Vitalik has stripped away um, from that some of the niceties, the things that make it sort of elegant and clean. Uh, if we wanted to do a very swift merge, we could do that, but it's still under discussion. I don't know which way this is going to go at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely really contentious. To do that would be interesting itself. So I, I want to dig into that before we get into tech, if that's okay. So mm. just like kind of contextualizing the conversation. Normally when there's a hard fork on Ethereum, you have to generate consensus and that is a very long process. And it's always kind of an evolving process, even for the ETH1X chain right now which that word is kind of getting rid of, but for ETHPOW, I guess you could say, that process is being heavily audited and changed right now. The process has been used for years, but for ETH2, it's much more closed doors in the sense that, you know, there's only some people who can understand what you're talking about. Not everyone understands Kate commitments. <laughs> I certainly don't, but I have to write about them. Right now, I'm wondering, Ben, what you think about the process for generating consensus for forcing a change from ETHPOW to ETH proof of stake. 
would that involve getting each client team involved? Would that just require the ETH research team to kind of green light this? Would this require a more larger consensus movement like we see typically with hard forks? Yeah, I think this would fall under the standard Ethereum governance um, process, which is making the IP and then discuss it endlessly. Uh, do lots and lots of testing, proving that it works, gathering consensus around it, that this is not only technically correct, but desirable, that it's safe, that it's good for the ecosystem and so on. You know, to the extent that proof of stake has been Ethereum's uh, end goal since the very earliest days. I mean, every, everyone on Ethereum should be uh, with the program on that. I don't think there's going to be any principled objection to it. It's a question of when we shift you know, $200 billion worth of Ether plus whatever's in DeFi plus whatever's in NFT over to the new chain, it needs to be, everyone needs to be completely convinced this is totally safe and it's, nothing is going to break. So that's going to be the sort of longest process of uh, auditing and testing and test nets and, and so on and so forth. So there's going to be a lot of governance discussion, but I, I don't expect that to be around the principle of it. I expect that to be pretty much green-lighted. It's going to be about the detail and the safety uh, and the timing of, of the whole thing. That's what I expect. Okay. So I want to talk about the Beacon Chain itself and swapping over. So we have proof of stake there running smoothly. Of course, it doesn't have any accounts right now, so there's no transactions going back and forth. And like you said, this executable beacon chain is just a fork of geth it's stripped down bare bones and then there's a bridge that allows accounts and transactions on the geth client to talk to the beacon chain can you kind of walk us through what that looks like in execution are these geth clients going to be altered substantially or changed so if if i'm working on the geth team right now like what am i having to do to get mm. uh this proposal ready and what does geth look like would say this happens in the next three months, probably won't, but would say, what does Geth look like in a year from now? The, the answer is reasonably simple. It's more about taking stuff out than putting stuff in. So basically the, the proof of work engine is removed um, and a couple of interfaces are put in to Geth or insert other ETH1 client here so that ETH2 client, say Teku, my client, talks to the ETH1 node and everything on the ETH1 side remains the same apart from two things, one of which is the proof of work and the other is the gossiping of blocks around the network. So what happens if it's my turn to produce a block and that's governed by the beacon chain, then my ETH2 node, my Teku node, says to its ETH1 partner, make me a block. An ETH1 node has got its uh, mempool, its transactions, uh, and it assembles a block and it sends it back over to the ETH2 node and the ETH2 node gossips this block around the network with the blocks it's already gossiping. Uh, if I receive a block from a peer, then I send it to my ETH1 node and I say, insert this block in your chain and everything else remains the same. That's pretty much the only cha uh, changes. The beauty of this is that really nothing changes on the ETH1 side. So all the dApps, all of the tooling, all of the compilers, all of the execution, everything is exactly the same after proof of stake as it is before proof of stake. Now, that's nearly true. <laughs> so there's a, a lot of things have been taken out of ETH2 over the years. And so that's eventually where I want to get this conversation, talk about that. So we had 1,024 shards and then went down to 64. And now with this, you'd have one shard ostensibly, and maybe you can add more later, EWASM or 
gosh, there's a whole list I saw yesterday. of just ideas I've been taking out uh, or statelessness, I guess is another idea that's kind of still long-term. So what happens to those ideas that are still in the R&D stage and can they be added later after the merge? And, or is that dependent on the politics of Ethereum and the appetite for people to add more features after the merge? Yeah, this is a really great question. So nothing dies. Um, pretty much all the ideas are still uh, alive and at some stage uh, ideally will be delivered. So as you know, Vitalik's done this massive sort of overview of all the different parts of the, the roadmap and how they interact and, and where we are on, on delivering them. And that's a multi-year project. So, and there are many things around like the sharding, the data availability layer, having executable shards is still in the frame at some stage potentially eWASM. Uh, there are teams working on all, all these things, but I have a concern about this. We've been able to move very quickly with ETH2 up to now. Uh, it may not look quick from an outside point of view, but from so, you know, I can tell you as a, as a client dev and you know, protocol specialist, we have moved exceptionally quickly because we haven't been hampered by, by governance. We've just been able to iterate, test, you know, backtrack, and just work things through ourselves. As soon as we hit the brick wall of the all core devs meeting, I fear that everything grinds to a halt. You know, as an illustration of this, EIP 1559, it's been worked on for like two years now, uh, over two years, two and a half years since it was first proposed as an idea. And it's only just been approved. And that's not even that big a technical change. And I worry that things kind of run into the sand. So I'm torn. I, I want to get proof of stake done, but I know that yeah. as soon as we get it done, kind of innovation slows to a crawl. There's sort of tensions in my mind at the moment. I think that's a very legitimate concern, Ben, because if you think about the governance process on Ethereum, that not just with EIP-1559, but if everybody remembers ProgPAL, all of like that same governance process will effectively become the governance process of Ethereum 2.0. Once Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0, you know, we create that bridge once the two chains merge. If we leave things like statelessness, eWASM, basically the whole list, Will, that you mentioned of things that wouldn't be created before the merge happens, it would be created after the merge happens. All of that is going to take several months, if not years, to get through this governance process. Like not even just talking about the research and development, we're talking about just the number of stakeholders that will need to be consulted with in order to get all these things done. And maybe that's good. I mean, as you were saying, Ben, the process with Ethereum 2.0 development is that it's decentralized and it's open source. So it makes things difficult, mm -hmm. but that means you have everybody's point of view. So, I mean, if we're holding to that, yes, this would be a very good thing for the development of Ethereum 2.0. But the other thing that I'm quite concerned about is are we losing out on the benefits of proof of stake by cutting corners? As in the efficiency, scalability, those low fees, all of those benefits that proof of stake Ethereum 2.0 was supposed to bring. If we start to bring the merge forward in the timeline, is the promise of Ethereum 2.0 solving the scalability issues on Ethereum, solving the high fees issues on Ethereum, is that impacted negatively? Because I'm, I'm worried about the trade-off here that Ethereum is going to switch to Ethereum 2.0 and Ethereum 2.0 won't really solve the core issues that it was meant to solve, which is Ethereum's scalability issue and Ethereum's high fees. So that's another one of my concerns, I think, with this quick merge. 
Yeah, uh, ETH 2.0 has always been about uh, two things, one of which is a move to proof of stake and, and the other of which is scalability. To a large extent, those two things have been coupled quite tightly in the, in the roadmap. So we had this sort of roadmap that delivered both. They've now been decoupled, really. The scalability side of stuff has been pushed to roll-ups and layer two and sort of deferred in, in protocol. And that's, that's probably the right thing to do. Having a sort of smaller protocol is probably better, less attack surface, and layer two can iterate more rapidly without breaking stuff. So that, that's probably the right direction. So what that leaves us with in what's kind of called ETH2 is the move to proof of stake and also data sharding. So this is a form of partial sharding which can feed data into rollups to give massive scalability. So yeah, there have been changes, but I think proof of stake is safe. I mean, we're, we're not going to lose any benefits of that. Switching off proof of work mining is a done deal. Yeah, ETH2 or ETH POS now, I guess, is the, the term in favor is you know about scalability, but that has now been moved to rollups. And then proof of stake has kind of taken on its own thing to be anti-mining in a sense. And Ben, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like in the past proof of stake was kind of seen as a scalability a way to address scalability issues as well. But now it's like all rollups and everyone's supposed to have their own rollup and there's going to be rollups that can interact with each other. And that is kind of the pathway for scaling Ethereum. And I am wondering, when do you think, do you think it's irresponsible not to have the shards in there, Ben? Or do you think that it's, that the need is now because of the gas fee pressures and because the rise of alternate blockchains that are taking away from Ethereum's market cap? If rollups can deliver on the promise and uh, early indications are good, then we can defer the sharding, buys us time, buys us a couple of years potentially. And I I think that that's the right approach. It's always slower to do things in protocol and you have to be a lot more careful. So taking it to rollups and layer two gives us a lot more flexibility. So, but there is an if there, you know, rollups are not yet proven as a scalability solution. So as I say, signs are good. I was happy to use the uh, ZK Sync rollup uh, yesterday to make my Gitcoin grants. It was a nice, it was a great experience. I think that it's quite concerning though that Ethereum 2.0 and this move to proof of stake has transgressed into, we don't like miners, let's you know, basically shut the miners out of Ethereum governance entirely and remove them. Because I think this hatred towards miners is it's a bit unfounded. Like they're basically the people who secure the Ethereum blockchain now. And because of their disagreement with EIP-1559, this controversy around, well, okay, if we don't like the opinion of Ethereum miners, and if they're against what the majority think, let's just fork them out of the protocol. I think Ethereum 2.0 was meant to be not about we hate miners, Ethereum hate miners. I think Ethereum 2.0 was always about We like proof of stake because it requires less energy than proof of work. We like sharding because we like scalability and we want Ethereum to not struggle with the same uh, network capacity limits, transaction fees, like high transaction fees that it has always in the past. And I think if Ethereum community loses sight of that, and if the true meaning behind what Ethereum 2.0 represents and what people have been waiting for for such a long time, if that's not gained through this merge, like no matter how quick the merge happens, like if the merge doesn't actually reduce the energy consumption of the blockchain and it doesn't lower fees on the network and allow for more dApps and more users to use Ethereum, like if those things don't happen with this merge, 
I genuinely think that people are going to say Ethereum 2.0 failed. Ben's got some thoughts. I want to hear it. <laughs> I, I mean, come on. How are you going to take an upgrade like Ethereum 2.0 and basically make it happen in warp speed by creating that bridge mm. purely for the fact that you don't like miners on your network? <laughs> who are the people who have been securing the Ethereum blockchain for the past five years simply because they like a part of them, a portion of them doesn't agree with EIP 159? Because I will show you a website with the mining pools that do support EIP-1559. Mm. Yeah. So it's clearly not the whole mining community there. Yeah. I just think it would be reckless and it would send mm. a bad signal for Ethereum governance to make the bridge, to make the merge, uh, simply because a portion of their community doesn't agree with, with the rest. I, I actually agree. And I don't think we need a war. I've argued in, in various forums that, that we should treat miners fairly. I mean, they know the, they know the end is coming. They, they got in on the basis that um, proof of stake is coming. Um, but I, I think you know, giving an opportunity to gracefully wind down large mining operations is, is fair and reasonable. So, and we, we don't need to be antagonistic about this. This can be done diplomatically and uh, fairly. A lot of Ethereum miners are kind of uh, OG, you know, Ethereum um, characters, been around a very long time, are full participants of the community. There is a section that are kind of hash for hire you know, they will just go and do whatever's profitable and that's fine. Um, but they don't really get to tell us what to do with the protocol. I'm more interested in the people who are kind of involved in the protocol uh, and their views. Yeah, definitely interesting takes. Ben, I'm surprised you say that. I thought you'd be more against what Christine was saying. But I think that's a pretty reasonable approach. Ethereum mining and any mining in general is like an industrial scale activity. People have put lots of money into this. Uh, and so it is bummer to see your profit just kind of ripped out from under you uh, with the change. But at the same time, everyone knew this was coming along. The one, I guess, remark I would have back about securing the network is that miners do secure the network, but they're paid to do it. So miners don't get to tell everyone what to do. Miners are told what to do because uh, the incentives are there for do it to, to do it. So I'm not extremely sympathetic to miners, and especially with EIP 1559. I think a lot of the arguments against it have been pretty whack. I guess that's a pretty good technical term, right? So I don't really understand uh, the arguments there. And I think it is kind of in Ethereum's blood a little bit to have hard forks, right? And so if, and they're not always contentious, but some of them are, and some of them are not always supported. And that's kind of somewhat in the way I see Ethereum at least. So I wouldn't be super surprised if there is some sort of standoff. And I think obviously developers win in this case, but that's my take on it. Yeah, all things whack, all things whack in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, today we didn't get time, uh, Will, to go through the community developments and, and DAP ecosystem, but we'll definitely start off next week with that first on our agenda. Thank you to everyone who tuned in today for another episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. Ben, Will, and I will be back again next Thursday with more insights on proof of stake and all things contentious when it comes to Ethereum development. So please be sure to subscribe to Coindesk Podcast for notifications and alerts for when the next episode airs. And if you don't already do so, please read our newsletters. I write an update every other week on Ethereum 2 development, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. You can also subscribe to the Coindesk Weekly Newsletter, Valid Points, by going to coindesk.com. 
If you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. See ya. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim, Will Foxley, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. Listener.